Shalom, everybody. Shalom. And uh, welcome to another session. And in this session, I'm going to share with you on the subject insights into the Hebrew language. And what I would like to do is to uh, stir your desire uh, to want to study and know and learn the Hebrew language because the better you know and understand the Hebrew language, the greater that your Bible can come alive. And so, in learning Hebrew, where you begin when you're just starting is you learn the alphabet. So, um, in the time that we have, we are going to go through the alphabet and look at each letter, what it represents, and what its associations are. So once again, in doing this, hopefully it will stir you to have a greater appreciation for Hebrew in the language and give you a desire to want to study um, Hebrew and how it can help you to learn and understand the Bible better. So the first thing we're going to do is why should we be interested in studying the Hebrew language? And this is coming from a book, The Ancient Hebrew Language and Alphabet by Jeff Benner on page four where he explains prior to the incidents of the Tower of Babel only one language existed. It says in Genesis 11.1 1, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. From this we can conclude that God, Adam and Eve and their descendants spoke Hebrew. Once again from Jeff Benner's book on page one where he explains that Hebrew is a picture language. I don't know if you thought about this but when we talk and communicate to others what we are doing with our words is we create a picture that ultimately then we want to convey our thoughts to somebody else's thoughts. So we use words and how we understand things is through an image in our mind, through pictures. And so Hebrew then is a picture language. The original letters of the Hebrew alphabet was actually pictures or pictographs similar to Egyptian hieroglyphics. Each picture represented an object whose definition is closely related to the agricultural lifestyle of the ancient Hebrews. By studying the culture and lifestyle of the, of the ancient Hebrews we can better understand their language. So here is an example of how Hebrew is a picture language and down here on the left hand side is the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So for example the first letter is Aleph and this would be the pictograph of the Aleph. This is the Bet, this is the pictograph of the Bet, the Gimel, etc. So every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has an associated pictograph or picture that's going to help communicate to us the understanding behind the word. And I want to give you one example. The example here is the Hebrew word 
Father. And we're going to understand what is one of the meanings of who a father is through the Hebrew pictures of the letters. So, the, uh, the, the way you say uh, father in Hebrew is av. Av. And so, Hebrew is read from right to left. And so, we have then uh, the first letter is Aleph. So the first letter of Av, Father, is the Hebrew letter Aleph. And Aleph, as we're going to see when we look at the Hebrew letter Aleph, represents or it's associated with an ox. And an ox is strong. And the Aleph also has the meaning of strong. The second letter, Bet, Av, the second letter of Father, Aleph, in bed is the picture of a tent or a house where a family resides. So the pictograph meaning of Av, father, is one who gives strength to the house. Now, Hebrew is concrete thought rather than abstract thought. Greek thought views the world through the mind, abstract thought. Ancient Hebrew thought views the world through scenes, concrete thought. Concrete thought is the expression of concepts and ideas in ways that can be seen, touched, smelled, tasted, and heard. All five of the senses are used when speaking, hearing, writing, and reading the Hebrew language. An example of this is Psalms chapter 1 verse 3. The one who follows the Torah is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. So that gives you a picture understanding of what a person who believes in following the Torah is likened unto, we can usually make the connection to the description that we're given or the analogy that we're given that's associated with it. Let us take one of the above abstract words to demonstrate the translation from a concrete Hebrew word to an abstract English word. Anger is an abstract word and it's actually the Hebrew word af which literally means nose a concrete word when one is very angry he begins to breathe hard and his nostrils begin to flare a Hebrew sees, sees anger as flaring of the nose if the translator literally translated the above passage slow to know, slow to nose, the English reader would not understand the Hebrew. Now what we're going to do is we're going to begin to go through the Hebrew alphabet and let give us an understanding of each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. And so this is A, this is a Lamed, which is an L, this makes an S sound, 
and this makes an F sound. Ah, la, F, Aleph. The word Aleph is related to aloof because here's Aleph, Aleph, and here's aloof. So the root of aloof is Aleph. This right here is a Vav and it makes the oo sound. So if I take away this, which makes an e, a lef, um, this is a, same two letters, oo, oof. See, it's, these three letters are one, two, those are the three letters. So, um, a lef is related to aloof. Aloof means a domesticated animal or ox. And so if we want to know the meaning of this word in Hebrew, the letters, the words that have the same letters is, is a, associated with the family of that word. And everything associated with the family of that word gives you a picture to understand the root of that word. That word in all the words associated with that word, meaning that has the same letters, will give you a broader picture and understanding of the idea behind the word. So that's why if Aleph is re related to Aluf, if I want to get a deeper meaning of what Aleph is and what it represents, I can take the word Aluf and that has an associated meaning. So the word aloof means a domesticated animal such as a sheep, cow, and ox. So aleph is associated with an ox. Aleph is also associated with ox first or leader because the word aloof also can mean a leader. So aleph is associated with first a leader or an ox. It's an ox, it means strength. Strength, leader, first. In the Torah, Oxen are acceptable offerings and are regarded as being kosher. From Messiah and his Hebrew alphabet by Dick Mills and David Michael on page 2, oxen or bullocks were among the kinds of animals which were acceptable as sin offerings according to the laws concerning sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 4 verses 1 through 21. The only animals which could be sacrificed at all were those considered clean or in other words, those whose flesh is kosher. And so an ox is a servant. Throughout history, it has been oxen which have plowed our fields and when yoked together in greater numbers, pulled our heavy loads. When an ox reaches a certain degree of strength, it begins to serve as a worker. So we can see how the word aleph is going to be associated with an ox or a servant. So the biblical picture that the ox portrays is one of a clean animal strong enough to serve and capable of being sacrificed.
What do we see in Aleph? What does the letter? What's its association with us? We see the strength of this sacrificial animal, its life of hard work, and its sacrificial death. And so in this word picture of Aleph, Aleph is going to represent or be connected and associated with Yeshua as being a servant. Now I'm going to show you something from Genesis in chapter 1 and verse 1 where in English it's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and in Hebrew it's Breshit, Bara, Elohim, Et, Hashemayim, Va'et, Ha'aretz and in this verse there happens to be one, two, three, four, five, six Alephs. Six Alephs appear in Genesis chapter 1. Now I'm going to give you a Midrashic meaning of why there are six Alephs in Genesis chapter 1. And the Midrash is it has to do with time. In the lost books of the Bible, Barnabas chapter 13 verses 3 through 6, it says, Himself testifies saying, Behold, this day shall be a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is in six thousand years, shall all things be accomplished. And what is it that he says and he rested on the seventh day? He means this that when his son shall come and abolish the season of the wicked one and judge the ungodly and, sh and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars then shall he gloriously rest in that seventh day so in other words this is outlining that there's seven thousand years to time and the first six thousand years the earth labors and on the seventh day is a sabbath rest for the earth and this thought that's in Barnabas is in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 97 A and B where it says the Tanat Debi Eliyahu teaches the world is to exist for 6,000 years so this is how the rabbis break down the 6,000 years the first 2,000 years there was desolation which the word is tohu 2,000 years the, the Torah flourished from the time of Abraham onward and then the next 2,000 years is the days of the Messiah meaning there was an expectation that the Messiah would come after 4,000 years and the days of the Messiah would be the next 2,000 years and the rabbis say that through our many sins all these years have been lost and then it says that the Messiah should have come at the beginning of the last 2,000 years or after 4,000 years the the delay is due to our sins so there was an expectation that he would come after 4,000 years from Adam guess what Yeshua did come 4,000 years from Adam and so this is how this would look 
this way. The first 2,000 years is desolation. This is tohu. The next 2,000 years, the Torah flourished, beginning with the life of Abraham and going forward. And then these 2,000 years is known as the days of the Messiah. And then the last 1,000 years is known as the future coming. We call it the Messianic era. Okay, so based upon time, we're going to give you a midrash of why there's six Alephs in Genesis 1.1. So, we're going to look at it this way. The first two occurrences of the Aleph, it is the third letter in the first two words. So here's the first word. You notice, you go from right to left. And this is the first letter, the second letter, there it is. It's the third letter. And that's the word Breshit. Here's the next word, bara, And one, two, it's the third letter. So the first two occurrences, it's the third letter. And the Midrash is that, that these first two Alas represent the 2,000 years of time when man was farthest from the God of Israel. Now, the next two occurrences of the Aleph, it's the first letter of the next two words. Breshit, bara, Elohim. And so, Elohim begins with an Aleph, first letter of the word. And then here's Et. It's two letters, and the first letter is an Aleph. So, here, the next two occurrences, it's the first letter of both of these words. And so the Midrash is, is it represents the second 2,000 years of time when man was closest to the God of Israel because the nation of Israel received the Torah. Then, in the last two occurrences, it's the second letter of these two words. There's the first letter, there's the second letter. There's the first letter, there's the second letter. And so the Midrash is that the third 2,000 years of time is when there is a major conflict in the earth between those who want to serve the God of Israel, represented by the Aleph being the first occurrence, and those who want to rebel against him, represented by the Aleph is the third letter. This is number two. So the last 2,000 years, the Midrash is, it, it prophesies that there's going to be a conflict between those who want to follow the God of Israel or not. And we see that being played out in America, especially in this generation. There's a cultural conflict between those who don't want to follow the God of Israel and those who do. In the book, The Wisdom of the Hebrew Alphabet by Rabbi Monk, on page 43, he explains that the Hebrew letter Aleph is the Hebrew letter that's going to represent God. The Aleph symbolizes the one and only, the eternal, the omnipotent God. So how do we make the association that the Hebrew letter Aleph is going to be the letter that's going to represent the God of Israel? Because the way you write this letter in its graphic form is right here. And so this thing at the top this actually resembles, right there, the Hebrew letter Yod. And the Hebrew letter 
Yod, or sometimes you say Yud, has the numerical value of 10. Now, below, you have another Yod. It has a numerical value of 10. And this, going through the middle, it resembles the Hebrew letter Vav. And Vav has a numerical value of 6. So you have the Yod, which is 10, a double Yod, which is 20, and then you have the Vav, which is 6. So looking at it this way, Aleph can be thought of as being associated with 26. The numerical value of Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the Yod is 10, the He is 5, the Vav is 6, and the He is 5. So the numerical value of Yod, He, Vav, He is 26. Aleph can be written to be thought of as 26. Yod, He, Vav, He has a value of 26. So we associate the Aleph as being a letter that represents or is associated with the God of Israel. And this is also mentioned in the book In His Own Words by Grant Luton on page 3. So from the book, he's trying to show the same thing here. This looks like a Yod. This looks like a Vav. This looks like a Yod. The value of 26. Okay, let's look at some other things that how we can associate the Aleph with the God of Israel. If you look at the Torah, the 15th letter of the Torah is an Aleph. Let's see if we can verify that. The 15th letter of the Torah is an Aleph. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. There you go. The 15th letter is an Aleph. Okay? So, the 15th letter of the Torah is an Aleph, and the numerical value of Yah, a term for the God of Israel, is Yod, 10, and He, 5, 15. The Aleph is the 15th letter, that's the gematria of Yah. The 26th letter of the Torah is an Aleph. Let's see if we can make that. So here we had, uh, this was 15, right? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. There you go. The 26th letter is an Aleph. And 26 happens to mean, happens to be the numerical value of Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Yod is 10, Hey is 5, Vav is 6, Hey is 5, 26. So Aleph is connected with Yah and Yahweh. Now the 31st letter of the Torah is an Aleph and the numerical value of El, one of the names of God, is 31. Aleph is 1, Lamed is 30, 31. The 86th letter of the Torah is an Aleph and that's the numerical value of Elohim. Take each letter, it adds up to 86. And the third letter of the Torah is an Aleph and Av, Father, has a numerical value of three. We often associate God, God the Father. So, little interesting tidbits there. 
Okay, let's see some other things here. Uh, we're told in Deuteronomy 4.24 that God is a consuming fire. And here's the Hebrew word for fire, esh. It begins with a aleph. We're told in 1 John 1.5 that God is light. Here's the Hebrew word for light, or. Or begins with an aleph. God is love, 1 John 4.8. And the Hebrew word for love is ahava. It begins with an aleph. So those are some reasons how we have the association that the letter Aleph is associated and represents the God of Israel. Now this is Leviticus 1.1. This is how it would look like in a Torah scroll, Leviticus 1.1. And here's the first word of Leviticus, Vayikra. Vayikra, which means, and he called. And in a Torah scroll, the Aleph in the word Vayikra is written like this. It's, it's written small. It's written smaller than the other letters. And so why would this be? You know, if it's out of what would be otherwise normal, it would cause you to say why? Why is the letter written small? So of course it's not written down in there. This is the reason why the letter is small. Uh, so there has to be a derived interpretation. By separating the small aleph from the four letters which precede it. So these are the four letters that precede it. One, two, three, four. We can construct the phrase Vaikra aleph. Vaikra aleph. So in other words, if I take this Aleph and separate it by itself, since Aleph can represent the God of Israel, if I separate these four letters from the Aleph, then we can read it, um, and he esteemed or he honored the small Aleph. Who or what is the small Aleph? Remember, Aleph also represents Aleph, aluv, ox, servant. This is what Paul wrote of Yeshua. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself of low esteem. Like the Aleph. He made himself low. He made himself small. He became as a servant. In light of the fact that Aleph symbolizes God's divine image and Yeshua is the image of the invisible God from Colossians chapter 1, it's easy to see how the small Aleph of Leviticus 1.1 represents Yeshua in his humility. And why is the Aleph printed in an elevated position? See, it's small, but it's not at the bottom. It's not down here, it's elevated, it's up there. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So, he humbled himself, made himself low, and by humbling himself, he became exalted.
The Hebrew word for ark, aron, begins with an aleph. There it is, aron, there's the aleph. And the ark itself, like the ark itself, aleph represents God's presence. This is from the book In His Own Words by Grant Luton. The ark contains three objects. The stone tablets upon which God inscribed the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's staff which budded. These three objects are reminders of God's righteousness, God's provision, and God's guidance. The stone tablets were placed in the ark after the Israelites rejected his authority by committing idolatry with the golden calf, thus depicting their rejection of God's righteous laws. The manna was placed in the ark after the people complained of not having enough variety in their diet, thus depicting, thus depicting their rejection of God's provision. Aaron's rod was placed in the ark after the people complained about God's choice of Moses and Aaron as Israel's leaders, thus symbolizing the rejection of God's guidance. As we have seen, the first letter, Aleph, represents God. The second letter in Aleph is a Lamed. The, the word Lamed means to learn. Lamed in Hebrew means to learn. The last letter, Aleph, the F, is a Peh. And Peh in Hebrew means mouth. Together, the three letters, if we, if we look at it pictorially, teach us that Aleph, we must meet the Lord, Lamed, learn from him, then pay, speak of him. So, that's a little bit of a background of the letter Aleph. So, let's go to the next letter. The second letter is Beit. The next letter is Bait. Drum roll. Da da. Okay, this happened before and I haven't figured it out. You said I had to point it to there, right? So I'm pointing it there. Or I got to point it here. So, from the book The Inner Meaning of Hebrew Letters, page 31, the revealed meaning of the letter Bet is bait and bait in Hebrew means house so we say bet or bait and bait means a dwelling place a house or a home and so the pictorial meaning is bet represents a house a home or maybe even a tent bait in Hebrew is associated with a house a family, a tribe, a nation, or a temple. So let's look at this idea that bait can mean or linked with a house, a family, a tribe, a nation, or a temple and see that these terms are what his people are referred to in the Bible. His people's called a house, a family, a tribe, a nation, a temple. So now let's look at that.
Yeshua's family is the house of Jacob. Exodus 19.3 Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. We're called his house. Next. Who was this house of Jacob at Mount Sinai? It says in Exodus 12.37 and the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot and a mixed multitude went up with them. Therefore, the house of Jacob consisted of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the mixed multitude. When we think of those that came out of Egypt, we normally don't think of the mixed multitude because most often it says, we say, when the Jews came out of Egypt. And so how is the mixed multitude a part of the house of Jacob? Because the Torah calls them strangers. They were sojourners. And the way in which they became a part of the house of Jacob is they were adopted or they were grafted in. So God's family consists of the native born and those that are adopted and grafted in. Yeshua's family is the house of Jacob as we can see in Luke chapter 1 verses 32 and 33. He will be called great and called son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He, Yeshua, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now in Hebrew grammar if we have the letter bet at the beginning of a word in the grammar of the Hebrew language if we have the letter bet at the beginning of a word it's a prefix and in English the letter bet at the beginning of the word we would interpret it as meaning in or at or by or among or with or by means of or through so this is how two English words is really one Hebrew word. And so bait is associated with house, household, or grammatically in or by. So this is a bet. This is the pictograph. In its meaning. Now, some of you may know, some of you may not, may not know. The very first word in the Bible, in the Torah scroll, in Hebrew, which is Breshit, and we translate Breshit as in the beginning, that in a Torah scroll, this very first letter of the word or the very first letter in the Bible, that's the bet, that's Breshit, it's enlarged. It's bigger than the other letters in a Torah scroll. <coughs> Whenever a word in a Torah scroll has a letter that's a different size than the other letters, 
it signifies that another important interpretation must be looked at. We see that Yeshua wants to dwell with his people. Exodus 25.8 Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. According to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. The word dwell is the Hebrew word shakan. It means to settle down, abide, dwell, reside. He wants to abide, dwell with his people. Now, look at the commentary from the rabbis. All right? And let, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell within them. Now, this is, this is the, um, the application of the Hebrew. So, let's see what Rashi, an Orthodox Jewish commentary of the Middle Ages, what he has to say about this. Rashi comments, make me a sanctuary means make for my name a sanctuary, a house of holiness. Notice that the ending phrase is dwell within them and not dwell in it. It doesn't say make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in it. It says make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This can be interpreted to mean that God dwells in each and every one of us. And this is what Paul says in his writings. This is the exact thought or the words that he expresses in his writings. Yeshua's dwelling presence is his glory. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. In the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the, of the cloud. Then the cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. His dwelling presence is his glory. So he wants his glory to be present among us, with us, on us, in us. Now, the earthly tabernacle is a shadow of the heavenly one, Hebrews 8.5, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mount. We see that Yeshua dwells with his people in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21-23 The city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light. We're also going to see that the temple is the house of Yeshua. Matthew 21-12 Yeshua went into the temple of God, and he said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You see, he called the temple his house. Isaiah 56-7 he was quoting from here. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all people.
Yeshua's dwelling presence is his glory. Ezekiel 43, 5. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And he said to me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. We can see that Yeshua came to dwell with his people. He came to tabernacle. He came, he wants us to dwell with him in his house. John 1.14 And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.23 Yeshua answered and said, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come and we will make our abode with him. Believers in Yeshua are called his house. Hebrews 3.6 But Messiah as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? He's a son over his own house. Whose house are we? 1 Peter 2.5 You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Yeshua Messiah. And so, based upon Exodus 25, 8 and 9, and even the Jewish thought on it, Paul says, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. So this is making the application to the Jewish understanding of Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Make me a sanctuary. Not that I may dwell in it. I want to dwell among or I want to dwell with them. So he fulfills the desire of the tabernacle in the temple, which is our bodies. And he wants his spirit and his glory to abide there. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We see this in 2 Corinthians 6.15 and 16. And what concord has Messiah with Belial? And what part has he with an infidel? In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Look, you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so those are the applications of bait, which means a house. It's connected with uh, the family of the God of Israel is called a house. Now the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Gimel. G-I-M-E-L. Gimel. Gimel. Gimel is associated with a camel because in Hebrew a camel is Gamal. Gamal 
You see, in Gamal are the same letters as Gimel. The only difference is what we might call the vowel sounds. And so, Gimel is associated with a camel. That's pretty quick and fast, isn't it? The fourth letter. The Dalit. Dalit. Dalit means door. So the word Dalit is a cognate with the word Dalet. See, it's a cognate, meaning it's got the same letters. And so Dalit is cognate with the word Dalet, and actually it's Dalet that means door, gate, portal, or entrance. So in the association, we say Dalet means door, but door is literally Dalet, but it's got the exact same letters. So this is why in the pictograph, a Dalet is going to look like a pathway or an entrance. The Hebrew word Jew, Yehuda, is the combination of Yahweh plus Dalit. So let's see that. The name Judah, which is Yahuda. And Yehuda is the only name in the Bible that contains all the letters of God's name. Yod, Hey, Va Yod, Hey, Vav Hey. So I, if I take these four letters, Yod, Hey, Vav Hey, Yahweh, the one letter that's left is Dalit. So I can rearrange Yehuda and say Yod, Hey, Vav Hey plus Dalit. And Dalit means door. So Yehuda can mean Yahweh plus door. The Hebrew word Dal, which is a part of Dalit, Dal, Dal means a pauper or poverty. So this is why Dalit, it means a door. But the shorter version, using the two letters dal, means humility and poverty. And so the application is that dalit, or dal, dal means humility and poverty, is our spiritual condition before we met Yeshua. And Yeshua was despised and rejected of men, Isaiah 53, 1 and 3. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquitted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Yeshua is meek and, hum and humble. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly, humble meek and riding upon a donkey upon the colt a foal of a donkey so 
in its shortened form, Dalit, Dal, is a picture of Yeshua. But Dalit means a door, and Yeshua said in John chapter 10, verse 7 and verse 9, I'm the door. So the Dalit is a letter that can represent him. Yeshua said, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 9, I am the door. So now we go to the fifth letter. The fifth letter is Hey. You have Hey. So these two dots here make the A sound. So you say, this is Ha, A. Ha, A. Hey. This is silent. Ha, A. Hey. Now, we have that the Hebrew word hey means lo or behold. You know, it says, and lo, and behold, that's hey. Now, in the Hebrew grammar, the letter hey at the beginning of a word, the letter hey at the beginning of the word means the. That letter at the beginning of the word means the. For example, the Hebrew word for tree is eights. Eights. Tree. If you say ha eights, it's the tree. Man is ish. If I say the man, I just put a hey in front of it. Ha ish. The man. So we see that hey means lo, behold, and grammatically at the beginning of the word it means the. Now if we look at how this letter is written, Right here, these may look like legs. This would be like a waist. And this is legs. So this leg, look, looks like it's broken. So it looks like a broken leg. Um, or it's out of joint. And so the definition of the word hay is to break. For Jacob, blessing came at the price of brokenness. To make us usable, God must bless us, but he also must break us of our self-will and pride, which comes at the expense of brokenness in order to bless us. And so, the way we, we would pronounce the hey is you're like breathing outward. You say, hey. Hey. Breathing outward. So this is why and how the letter hey, hey, represents the breath of God. I'm breathing. Hey. And breath, the breath of God, is the Holy Spirit. So we can see that Yeshua breathed on his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. John 20, 21 and 22. Then, you, then said Yeshua to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, hey represents breath. And breath is life. So, Abram, his name got changed to Abraham. And Sarai, her name got changed to Sarah. So, here is Abram, these four letters, Abram. Here is Abraham. And the difference between Abram and Abraham is a hey was added to his name. The only difference between Abram and Abraham is a hey is added to his name. When he made covenant when, is when his name got changed. So in his covenant with God, there was a letter that expressed God in him. The hey. So his name was Abraham. He did the same, God did the same thing to Sarai. He added a hey to her name. And in the name of the God of Israel, there's two hey's. Yod hey, vav hey. Now we're going to look at the sixth letter. The Hebrew letter vav. 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 So, Vav in Hebrew can be translated as a nail, a hook, or a peg. A nail, a hook, or a peg. So, the way that you write Vav pictorially, it looks like a nail. Grammatically, the Vav, at the beginning of the word, means and. Vav, at the beginning of the word, means and. And since Vav is the sixth letter, it has the numerical value of six. Aleph, one. That's the first letter. Bet, the second letter, its value is two. Gimel, the third letter, its value is three. Dalet, the fourth letter, its value is four. Hey, the fifth letter, its value is five. Vav, the sixth letter, its value is six. So we can see Vav, which has a numerical value of six, first appears in the sixth word of the Bible. So we have Breshit in the beginning, that's one. Bara created Elohim God et which is not translated into English grammatically this tells you what what the direct object is ha aretz ha that's the the remember hey at the beginning the word is the no it's ha shamayim the heavens va'et and Aleph Tav is not translated. And the earth. One, two, second letter, third letter, third word, fourth word, fifth word, sixth word. 
And so we have the Vav appearing at the beginning of the sixth word of the Bible, and it has a numerical value of six. All these nice things in there that you'll never see in an English translation because you can only see it in the Hebrew. So let's see an example of how avav means hook or nail. Exodus 26.30 And you shall rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was shown you in the mount. And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of the shatim wood overlaid with gold. And here it's translated as hooks. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. The word hooks, the Strong's number 2053, is the Hebrew word vav. The sixth letter, which means hook, peg, nail. Their vav shall be of gold. Their hooks. Each curtain of the tabernacle was fastened to its post by means of a hook or a vav which happens to be the name of the letter under discussion in this chapter in the book In His Own Words by Grant Luton, page 68. For centuries, scribes would begin each column of the Torah with the letter Vav because its form depicts a hook fastened to a post. In this way, each column of print depicts a curtain of the tabernacle and the vav or the hooks of each column of print to a sheet of parchment. Of course you could only see this in the Torah scroll. Now in the Bible we have examples where a Hebrew word that has a vav in it a Hebrew word that has a vav in it is written completely or defectively. Defectively meaning the word is not how it's normally spelled. The vav is left out of the word. There's examples of words where the vav, which normally would be associated with the word, is left out of the word. It's called a defective spelling. And so uh, we have the word we're going to look at the word toldot. Toldot means generations or offspring. Toldot means generation or offsprings. So we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 which says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made them. So here in Genesis 2.4, we do not yet have the sin of Adam and Eve. Here is the Hebrew word todot. And right there is above. And right there is above. So in the word todot, which means generations, it has two vas. One there and one there. Now, after Adam sins, and then... He sins, and then the next occurrence of Todot is in Genesis chapter 5, 
verse 1, which says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. So when it mentions the generations of Adam, we only have the Vav in the Torah scroll that appears at the first part of the word. The second Vav is not there. There's a missing Vav. And so there's a meaning behind this is that because Adam sinned, the word that describes his offspring, he sinned, he was diminished, so the word that speaks of his offspring, the word gets diminished. So we have a missing Vav. And every occurrence in the Bible from Genesis 5 onward will have a missing Vav in the word generations until we get to Ruth chapter 4 verse 18 where it says and these are the generations of Perez which is going to give the, the, the genealogy to David and from the Messiah comes from David and so here in Ruth 4.18 it's got two vows so Adam sinned and the word so originally the word told out is spelled fully before Adam sins when Adam sins the word generation that speaks of his offspring there's a missing vav in every occurrence because he sinned he was diminished so now the word that describes him has a missing vav it's diminished but in describing the Messiah who would come and bring restoration from the sin of Adam now we have the full spelling of the word showing us that the, it's, it's through the Messiah he would come and he would add the vav he would restore that which was lost from Adam's sin now whoops in Leviticus 19.2 it says be holy for I the Lord your God am holy so where it says you be holy we be holy for I the Lord your God is holy in reference to God the word holy which is kadosh is spelled with a vav in the text where it's talking about God that he's holy it's got a vav However, when, it, when it's telling us to be holy, there's a missing vav in the word kadosh. In talking about us being holy, there's a missing vav in the word kadosh, holy. But speaking of the God of Israel, that he's holy, there is a vav. And here's the meaning. Because someone would say, with the logical mind, how can, how can we be as holy as God? The answer is we can't. So we can't equal his level. But he can see us as being holy, just not at the same level of holiness as he. And this is communicated by, in talking about us being holy, there's a missing vav. So he regards us as holy, even though there's a missing vav, even though we sin. He wouldn't command us to be holy if it wasn't possible. 
It's just that we're not going to be holy at His level. You see? How you can learn a spiritual truth? By looking at the language. Now, here's another example. That in the name of Elijah, which is in Hebrew, Eliyahu, in certain occurrences, there's a missing vav in his name. Five times in the Bible, Elijah, his name in Hebrew is Eliyahu, that his name in the text is spelled without a vav. Only five times. Every other time it's got the vav in it. Five times it's spelled without the vav. Every other time his name occurs, it has the vav. Five times a missing vav. Now, Jacob's name, Yaakov, five times his name is spelled defectively and five times in spelling Yaakov there's an additional vav in his name. Five times the vav is missing from Eliyahu's name and five times the vav is added to Jacob's name. So that is a fact of the Bible. The Midrash is why that is. So there's a Midrash regarding why that is. And the Midrash is explained here in the book The Messiah Text by Raphael Patai. So I'm going to repeat what I just said, okay? Everywhere in the Bible the name Jacob is spelt without the letter Vav except for five places it has a Vav. In other words his name is spelled with the added Vav. The Vav is added. And everywhere in the Bible the name Eliyahu, Elijah, is spelled with a Vav except for five places where it's not. I just showed it to you. So here's the Midrash on it. Why? So the Midrash is to teach you that Elijah will come and redeem the seed of Jacob. Jacob, this is a Midrash, Jacob took the Vav from Elijah's name as a pledge that Elijah would come and announce the redemption of the world to his children. That's the Midrash. That's an explanation for why it's so. Now, there are places in the Bible where the Vav is broken. In other words, the way you normally write a Vav is it starts here and it goes continuously down. And here in this word, this is Shalom, here uh, in the text, if you look at it in the Hebrew scroll, um, the Vav here is broken. Because Phineas was zealous for the honor of God, the Lord said, I'm making my covenant of peace with him. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. So normally this is how you spell shalom. You see a the vav is continuous. It's written like this, like a, like a hook, down. The illustration below shows the word in this passage as it appears in the Torah scroll. Notice the vav 
in shalom is broken in two. Now here's going to be an example in Leviticus 11.42 where the vav is oversized. See, it's supposed to stop right there. But it extends down below the line. It's oversized. It's longer. The word containing the oversized vav is the Hebrew word gahon, which means belly. The large vav exists in the very center or belly of the Torah. So, there's some interesting tidbits about the vav. So now we're going to go to the seventh letter, which is Zion. Zion. The seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Zion, spelled Zion. It has a numerical value of seven. Zion means an arm or a weapon. Zion means an arm or a weapon. So here's the pictorial representation of it. It looks like a weapon. It may look like an axe. We're told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The name of the letter Zion means weapon and its form represents a sword. And so um, we have in Malachi that in the Torah scroll there's an oversized Zion where, we, where it reads, this is Malachi 4.4, Remember the Torah of Moses my servant. Hear the word remember, Zikru, Zikru is spelled with an oversized Zion. Next, we're going to look at the eighth letter. The eighth letter is Het. Het is associated with, or it means, offense. So the pictorial representation is a fence, an inner room. <laughs> Het is also associated with life. The most common words associated with Het are Chaim or Chai. Chai, Chayim, starts with the head. It means life. Chai means living, alive, lively, vivacious, active, strong, healthy. The blood of the doorpost is represented by a head. When the blood of the Passover lamb was placed upon the doorposts and lintel of each Hebrew home, that blood formed the shape of the Hebrew letter Chet, the letter which is synonymous in the Jewish mind with life. So now we get to the ninth letter, which is Tet. And Tet represents a serpent. So if we look at the letter, you know, it wraps around. And Tet 
represents death. So we can see how the letter, the shape of the letter, kind of resembles a serpent, a twisting snake. So now we go to letter number 10, Yod. Yod. The tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Yod, sometimes spelled Yud. This is Yod, this is Yud has a numerical value of 10, it's the 10th letter. It's the 10th letter, has a numerical value of 10. Yod is related to Yad. So I take out the Vav, Yad, Yad means hand. So this is how Yod is associated with hand. The Yod is the smallest of the Hebrew letters. It's barely larger than a dot. The Yod appears unusually twice in the Torah. And here in the word Yigdal displayed the yod is large and here in the word to she for God or forsaken it is small so now when Yeshua said not the smallest letter that could be in, will, will be done away with the Torah that could be interpreted as the yod the yod is the smallest letter now we're going to get Letter 11, Kaf. Kaf. Kaf is associated with the palm of the hand or wing. In a Hebrew word, if Kaf appears at the beginning of the word, then it means like or as. So, the word for king in Hebrew is melech. Melech. If I have a kaf in front of the word, it means like a king. Melech is king. Put the kaf in front of the word king, it means like a king. So look, as you would say this in Hebrew, like a king, that's three words. But in Hebrew it's just one word. Kaf at the end of the word makes it possessive. So the Hebrew word for kindness is chesed. If I put the kaf at the end of the word, which would be right here, it means your, it's possessive, your, your kindness. Hazdek, hesed, hazdek, hesed, kindness, hazdek, your kindness. Now we're going to get to letter number 12, Lamed. Lamed means to learn. The root, Lamed, means to learn, study, 
or be, to, or be familiar with. So the way a Lamed looks, you see it's, it's, it's a long letter like this, like this. And so this resembles a shepherd's staff. The Lamed represents a shepherd's staff. It means to learn. So this, why, this is why the pictorial meaning of Lamed is a shepherd who has a staff. Now we're at number 13. Mem. There's only 24 letters. This is 13. Mem. You know, you learn the whole alphabet in an hour and a half, huh? No, we're going to run out of time before we get to all 24 letters. But Mem in Hebrew means water. Actually, water is Maim. Maim. So, mem, its associated meaning means water. And this is how a mem is written or looks if it's in the beginning or the middle of a word. But a lot of Hebrew words end with a mem. And if a word ends in a mem, it's written like this and not like that. So this is what's called the final form. Now we got the Hebrew letter Nun, number 14, Nun. Nun represents a fish. And the first century Christian symbol we most often find that's associated with those that believe in Yeshua is right here. And this represents or it looks like a fish. In Psalm chapter 45, if you look at it in Hebrew, that each verse will go through the Hebrew alphabet. Meaning, verse 1 will begin with an Aleph. Verse 2 will begin with a Bet. And it goes through in that alphabetic sequence, but in going through the alphabetic sequence, it bypasses the letter Nun. Many of the Psalms are written as acrostics, in which each verse is placed in alphabetical order. Meaning, the first verse begins with an Aleph, the second with a Bet, so on. As in Psalm 145. But the 14th verse of the psalm, which should begin with the noon, skips instead to the next letter, the Samech. Now, here's going to be an example of an inverted noon in the Torah scroll. This is actually how Numbers chapter 10, verses 10, Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, looks in a Torah scroll. You see this? It looks like it's bracketed. And you see, this is how a noon is. A noon looks like this. A noon looks like this. But in Numbers chapter 10, in 35 and 36, it's backwards. 
And it's almost like this right here is bracketed. So why are these words bracketed? The passage in brackets is translated this way. When the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. This is the traditional saying that we use when we put the Torah scroll away. And this phrase in the Hebrew text is bracketed. It's like, pay close attention to this. And because it's bracketed, the, the Talmud says that this, Rise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. May those who flee, may your foes flee from before you. That that is so significant. It has the merit to be its own separate book of the, of the Torah. The meaning of those words are so significant. It has the merit of having its own complete book or own complete understanding. That's the explanation. The book of Numbers speaks mainly of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. But this passage above speaks of the ark's journey. Since Moses recognized that Israel would always have enemies who would take every opportunity to attack, he began each leg of the journey with the plea that God would protect his people as they traveled to the land he had chosen for them. Whenever they paused in their journey, he would ask the Lord to reside in their midst in such a way that the countless thousands would experience his presence. At the moment a Torah scroll is removed from the ark, at the moment that the Torah scroll is removed from the ark, we say, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee from before you. The scroll is then lovingly carried around the synagogue so that all present may honor it by touching it with the fringes of the prayer, prayer shawls. The scroll is then unrolled and the weekly portion is read aloud by the individual who is called up from the congregation. At the conclusion of the reading, the rabbi raises the scroll and turns his back to the congregation so that the words of the Torah scroll are visible to all. While held aloft, the following blessing is chanted. It's a tree of life to those who take hold of it. Happy are those who support it. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of its paths are peace. Turn us, Lord, to you and let us return. Renew us as in the days of old. The scroll is then rolled up and once again paraded around the synagogue amongst singing and chanting. When the scroll reaches the ark, its final destination, then we say Numbers chapter 10, verse 36. Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now we're going to get to the Hebrew letter Semech. Semech means a prop, support, or lean upon.
Semek's name appears in the Torah in its root form most often in accounts describing the priest laying hands on the head of a sacrificial animal. The placing of a priest's hands on the sacrifice is phrased Vashmak Yado. Vashmak Yado. And he placed his hands. This word suggests that a priest did not merely lay his hands on the animal's head, but he leaned his weight upon it. So the, the imagery is you're putting your sins upon the animal. Remember, Yeshua took his sins for us. The weight of our sins was put on him. Now, next we got the Hebrew letter ayin. Ayin means or represents an I, the 16th letter, ayin. Letter number 17, pay. Pay, the 17th letter means mouth. Pay, the 17th letter means mouth. So this would be the pictorial representation. And when pay appears at the end of a word, it's written this way. If it's not at the end of a word, if it's not at the end of the word, it's written this way. So, because this is how you write it at the end of the word, this is called the final form. Next, we're going to have the Hebrew letter Zadi. Zadi means righteousness. Zadek. Zadek is an alternative form of Zadi. And it means one who is right, righteous, just, innocent, honest, upright, pious, or correct. The Hebrew letter Kof. The Hebrew letter Kof. Kof means monkey or ape. Kof means monkey or ape. And Kof means back of the head. Back of the head. Now we have the Hebrew letter Resh. Resh. We only got a few more letters. We made it through the whole alphabet. The Hebrew letter Resh. Resh represents head, chief, or poverty. So Resh means head. So Resh, Resh means head. Resh means poor or a beggar. So Resh represents a head. Even in its name, Resh, it's equated with Rosh, head. However, Resh has several meanings. Head, chief, master, prince, leader, commander. And it also can mean poverty. If we allow ourselves to be ruled by the head, making it our master and leader, if we allow ourselves to be ruled by our head, you might think of natural logic, making it our master and leader, then we will suffer spiritual poverty. Um, in Romans it says the carnal mind is an enemy of God. 
So now we have letter 22 out of 24, which is the shin. And the shin has two forms. If, in, in this form, if there is a dot on the right hand side, it's spelled and pronounced shin. If, if it's on the left, if the dot's on the left hand side, it's pronounced sin. If the dot's on the right hand side, it's sh, shin. If the dot's on the left hand side, it's pronounced sin. It's an S sound rather than an SH sound. So sheen means a tooth. Now we're going to look at the physical layout of Jerusalem where it says in 2 Kings chapter 21 verse 4, In Jerusalem will I put my name. How did he do this? He actually has done it literally because Jerusalem has on its right the Kidron Valley and through the middle the Tyropian Valley and on the left the Hinon Valley. So if we draw in the valleys, the Hinon Valley and the Tyropian Valley and the Kidron Valley, the literal topography of Jerusalem from an aerial photograph, it forms the Hebrew letter Shin. And now the Hebrew letter Shin is going to also be a letter that represents the name of God because it's associated with El Shaddai. Shaddai has a shin. So in most mezuzahs, the doorposts, you will see on the mezuzah the Hebrew letter shin. And this is the abbreviated form the mean Shaddai. Printed on the back of a mezuzah scroll are the letters Shaddai. Here's a Torah scroll that actually spells it out, Shaddai. These letters are the initial for Shomer Toldot Israel. There's the Shin, the D, and the Yod. Shaddai. Shomer Toldot Israel. Or guardians of the door of Israel. So you put it on the door. These letters represent the one who guards the doors of Israel. Um, that's actually Yeshua. And also the three letters Shaddai spells one of God's names in Genesis 17 where the one appeared to Abraham and said, I am El Shaddai. So this then is going to be the last letter. The Hebrew letter Tav. Tav means mark, sign, or we might say cross. And this is from the inner meaning of the Hebrew letters, page 309. And this is how it looks in its pictorial form. You see it's a mark, it's a sign, or it may look like a cross. The Taz Dame is the 
root of the word tiva. Tiva, tav, tiva, to make a mark or, or a sign upon. So um, here it says, I believe this is from Ezekiel 9. Slay the old men, young men, and maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. The phrase the mark is hatav, or the tav. So the mark that was put upon those that represented those that were set apart unto God, that weren't participating in the pagan things, put a tav on them. Mark, tav. In a place of public execution where crucifixions were commonly practiced as at Golgotha, a more permanent arrangement would have been constructed for the convenience of the executioner. The victim carried only the horizontal crossbeam on his shoulders to the place of execution. Once there, his hands were nailed to the crossbeam, and then the crossbeam with the victim nailed to it was hauled into position and hung on hooks, which were prefastened into two vertical posts. This arrangement looked nearly identical to the Hebrew letter Tav. The principle of the cross, this is in the book In His Words by Grant Luton, page 231. The principle of the cross is illustrated in some powerful ways by the Hebrew letters. The Bible tells us that God made him, Yeshua, who had no sin to be sin for us. The Hebrew word for sin is chata. If we fasten sin, chata, to the cross or the tav, we derive the word ha'ata, which means sin offering. So if we attach the word sin to the tav, sin upon the cross, we have in Hebrew sin offering. In the book, Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, there's an explanation to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah, till all be fulfilled. And so the explanation from the book by David Biven and Roy Blizzard Jr. is, Never imagine for a moment Yeshua says that I intend to do away with the law by misinterpreting it. See, um, to nullify the Torah means to misinterpret it. To fulfill the Torah means to properly interpret it. My intent is, is not to weaken or negate the law, but to properly interpret it. I came to establish it. That is to give it greater meaning. Not the smallest letter in the alphabet, the Yod, nor even its decorative spur will ever disappear from the Torah. That's a jot. You could, this could be interpreted as a Yod. One Yod or tittle is actually a decoration crown that in a Torah scroll there's decoration letters that are put on 
the words and on the letters. They're called tittles. And so the tittle of the jot or the yod is the small decorative spur projecting from the jot's upper end. That would be this. Other letters, for instance, the lamed, can also have a tittle. So this is a vav. This would be the decorative tittle to the vav. They, they, he says the spur. This is a lamed. This is the decorative part or the spur that got put to the letter. And in the book, this is the Torah, page 101, it asks the question, why are some letters of the Torah scroll embellished? The embellishments used by the scribe to decorate the letters of the Torah are, are called tagin, singular tag. These embellishments are referred to in the Talmud as Ketarim, crowns. The New Testament, Matthew 5.18, calls them tittles. The seven letters most commonly decorated with the Tagim are the Shin, the Ayin, the Tet, the Nun, the Zion, the Gimel, in the Zadi. So we're going to end by showing you this. So you see, we've already gone through the letters. I'm just showing you a couple more extra interesting things. And we'll end by asking the question, what is truth? What is truth? The Hebrew word for truth is Amet. Amet is spelled Aleph. That's the first letter of the alphabet. Mem, which is the middle letter of the alphabet, and Tav, which is the end letter of the alphabet. Truth is everything from the beginning to the end, including the middle. Truth is everything inclusive. If you leave something out, it's not truth. It's partial truth. So hopefully this will stir your intrigue to see some fascinating things that are associated and connected with the Hebrew language, the Hebrew letters. And by just having a beginning understanding of Hebrew, it can help you to better understand the Bible. So I pray this has stirred your curiosity and your interest to go study more and learn of the Hebrew language. So if you've been blessed, please give all praise, glory, and honor to whom it's due, and that's Yeshua the Messiah, because he and he alone deserves all of our praise, glory, and honor. Shalom.